And I'd like to invite the rest of you to open a copy of God's living word to the book of Numbers. We'll be in Numbers 21 this morning to get us going. So that's the fourth book of the Bible. Um, And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, that's page 129 of those Bibles. As you turn there, I want you to think about this statement uh, that one of my mentors told me in seminary. He said this. It's, a, I think, a very pr- profound statement, one that we should take to heart today. He says this. He says, you can tell a lot about a man by watching his eyes. Think about that. You can tell a lot about a man. You can tell a lot about a person, man or woman, we, by watching their eyes. When we, when we think about where our eyes go, it usually is going to reveal what we value and what we're chasing after. So think about it. Just one look can lead to a great opportunity or one look can lead to some kind of roadblock. One look can lead to a very foolish decision or one look can lead to a very wise decision. One look can lead to joy or one look can lead to despair. Just one look. And so let me ask you this morning, what entices you? Where do, you, where do your eyes go? Where do you fix your gaze and really chase after? See, this is true in a literal sense where we go and look with our eyes, but this is also true in a metaphorical sense too, right? So think about your own life. What's your personal vision? What do you, what do you value? Where do, what do you dream about? Where do you want to see your life goes? Because whatever that is, that's going to affect the daily details of your life, right? This is also true for a church. What's the vision of a church? Where has a church set their eyes? And I can tell you that however imperfectly, and we certainly are an imperfect church, okay, with a couple of imperfect, few imperfect leaders, pastors, but, but, but we have a vision of Christ. As revealed in his word, we have a vision to be compelled by his work, his love, to take his truth to this city and to the world. And so as we think about uh, this, we, we, we celebrate the works of God and what he's done, right? Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them, Psalm 111, verse 2. And we've uh, shared our theme verse for the year already. Great is the Lord. And his greatness is unsearchable, right? Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. So God desires for us to be captivated by a vision of his greatness, And then to be compelled to live in light of that vision. And we're going to see something of that this morning in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. And and as we look at this powerful story, we're going to receive one very clear command, exhortation, and one massive result from fulfilling that command. Okay, you with me? So, so, So what is that? It's simply this. Look and live. You got that? Simple as that. Three words. Look and live. The story of Numbers is going to tell us to look to God's provision so that we might live and have 
life in him. Now, what's happening here? We've been rolling through the Pentateuch. We're going to end this True and Greater series next week on Easter Sunday. But what we have here is the, the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and they're still, but they're still on their way to the promised land. And it tells us in just a chapter earlier that Aaron, Moses' brother, the spokesman before the people, he had just died. And, and then the people of Israel experienced this great victory in the first few verses of chapter 20. But then we shouldn't be too surprised that what we're going to see here is that they once again deviate from God's plan and there's trouble in the Hebrew camp. So let's pick up in verses 4, uh, four through 7 of Numbers 21. Here we go. It says this, from, from Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Okay, so this story in Numbers 21 is going to encourage us to look in two directions, okay? The first one is, is this, look and see the brokenness around us and the brokenness within us. All right, don't miss that. Look and see the brokenness that's all around us, but also the brokenness that is within us. You see, the, the people of Israel, remember, they're, they're traveling to the promised land. And I don't know if any of you maybe enjoy, can I get maybe a show of hands? Anyone enjoy a good road trip? Anybody? Yeah, that's me too. Okay, love a road trip. Okay, this one was not a good road trip. In fact, there wasn't even much of a road going here. I mean, they're just kind of carving their way out to the promised land. They're traveling through Edom, which tells us that instead of taking the most direct route, if you're anything like me, you like to take, you know, Google Maps, punch up the, the route, you get a few options, 17 minutes, 18, 15. I'm going to go 15, but maybe if I can kind of combine route A and route B, maybe I can get it down like 14 and a half. You know what I'm saying? Like anybody feel me on that? So you're like, you're trying to find the fastest route to get to your destination. And that would have been the Israelites too, but they have to travel through Edom around. So they're actually backtracking. Instead of going northwest, they're going southeast. And not only are they going the slower route, but they're also getting hungry. It says that, that they complain, we don't have any food, we don't have any water. They're getting a little irritated on this long journey. Perhaps if you've been on a road trip with some friends or family, uh, maybe you can identify with the little irritability in the car, van, or whatever, you know, mode of transportation that you may be taking. And this is what happens for the people of Israel. But as they're traveling, you see what happens. They, they take their eyes off of God, and they put their eyes on their circumstances, which leads them to, as verse tells, 4 tells us, to grumble and complain. 
They start complaining against God and against Moses. And we have seen this before, uh, this all too familiar refrain that occurs through the first four or five books of the Bible. I mean, we we saw it in Exodus 15, 16. We saw it in uh, Numbers 13. And here it is again in Numbers 21. And oh, by the way, we didn't choose all of the passages where Israel is complaining. It's just that they are complaining so much and disgruntled and rebelling against God. I mean, here it is again. You know what I'm saying? So, so they, they, they grumble against God, and this reveals, of course, that the people sin against God. They see their circumstances. They make the starting, startling revelation that their circumstances are not that great, and that leads them to complain. So perhaps you can identify with this this morning. You may look at your own circumstances in life, and you say, man, man Tanner, my life isn't that great either. I mean, I've got, I've got friction in my relationships. It's difficult to pay the bills. People are, are, are all up on my, in my way, on my nerves. I mean, we don't have to even read the Bible to know that this world we live in is fundamentally broken. But what I love about the Bible, the biblical worldview, is that it affirms what we see in the world around us. So not only is Christianity personally satisfying, experientially satisfying, as we're going to see as we move on through this story, but it's also rationally credible. It's intellectually credible. So, so we see that this world is broken, and then the Bible tells us why it's broken. It confirms what we see in the world. I mean, the conversations that I've had just in the past few days confirm this. Uh, I talked to some people that are they're talking about uh, corruption in the workplace. This person who didn't deserve the job got the job. Anybody ever been there? Friction, dissension in relationships. Addictions that assail us. We live in a fallen world, a troubled world, a broken world. But not only that do we see the corruption around us, the brokenness around us, but here is the very real news. There is also brokenness within us. We see our circumstances and we're prone to make a foolish leap from the circumstances around us and then project our circumstances onto God and say, God, since my circumstances are not that great, I am going to assume that you are not that great either. And we begin to turn away from God. We begin to rebel against God. We begin to grow impatient with God, as verse 4 says. And let me just say, it's always a matter of perspective. We focus on our circumstances, and we think wrongly of God. We focus on our circumstances, and, and so even for Christians, okay, let me, I mean, I don't know if you're in Christ or exploring Christianity today, but, but even Christians, it's like, hey, God, I believe in you, but you're not working on my time clock right here. What's, what's the deal, God? Like, I think my, my plan in this situation, I think, is a little bit better than yours, so why don't you hurry it up just a little bit? And the problem is we, we do not see the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end like God is. I mean, God was taking them where? Into the promised land. God's got it taken care of. He knows what is best for them, even if it's the slow route, even if it's the manna. Where else were they getting food, by the way, in the wilderness? Mm-mm. Ain't happening, right? So, so God is providing them food that they end up calling worthless food. And again, it's a matter of perspective. If they would just look to God, 
they would see that he is at work in their midst. And so God hears their grumbling. He hears their complaining. And, and I'm sure none of you can identify with this, right? Because you never, you never complained against God. You never questioned God in any, any sense of, of the imagination, right? And God hears their, their cry. And so, uh, so this, this sin against God, it leads to what? It, 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 sin always carries great consequences, Verse 6, it says, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. So, so sin, listen to this, sin always brings pain. There's like no other way around it. Sin always carries great consequences. See, God can send manna in the wilderness. He can rain down bread from heaven, but he can also send snakes into the midst of the camp. And these were fiery serpents. Some translations say the snakes that produce burning. It's just a way of saying that they, had, they were poisonous snakes. They were poisonous, venomous serpents that were coming in and biting the people. And consequently, many of the people were dying horrible, agonizing deaths. And we might say, well, man, Tanner, this seems kind of extreme. This is, this is, this is a little bit harsh here. Well, well, let me just say this. We have to, and doctors understand this. If you're in the medical field, you understand this. We, we have to have a reality check that the doctors call a diagnosis, okay? The people of Israel are not well. They're rebelling against God, they're complaining, they're, they're undercutting the leadership in, in, in the camp. And so, so there's this diagnosis that things are not well. And so God's prescription, while it say, may, may seem extreme, while it may seem harsh, God knows exactly how to wake up the people to grab their attention that they might return to God. So whatever it is that God does, let me just share this with you. He is working, number one, to glorify himself, show how great he is, and number Number two, he is working to draw people to himself back into a relationship with him. And this is exactly what's going on in Numbers 21. So the people not only sin against God and their sin carries great, great, great consequence, but they also recognize their sin and cry out for deliverance, okay? What does it say then in verse 7? It says, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And so I hope what will happen this morning is that each one of us will look into the mirror of our lives and then we'll gaze into the holiness of God, the perfection of God, and we'll see a bit of a disconnect there. And then what will happen is that we'll make a realization that we need God. We need his love. We need his forgiveness. We need his grace. Because here's the deal. Some people can hear these truths their whole life and yet never say, this is for me. Why do you think that the, the first words in the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached that we have recorded for us in the Bible, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does he mean by that? What he means is that people have to see their spiritual poverty 
in order to say, you know what? I'm broken on the inside and I need Christ and his work for me. And so if you have never seen your need, perhaps you've never come to Christ for salvation. And I would just beg and plead with you today to look at who God is, look into your own life, and hopefully the Spirit will draw you to the conclusion that yes, in fact, I'm not all set. I don't have it all together, but I need God's grace in my life. We all need a little work, not just on the outside, but on the inside, right? We need, we need heart surgery. We need God to give us a new heart to make us new. So first off, we need to look and see the brokenness around us and the brokenness within us. But, but then this begs the question, as they're crying out for deliverance, the question becomes, hey, number one, will God deliver them? Will he work and, and bring salvation? And if so, how's he going to do that? And that's where the story continues in verses eight and nine. It says this, then the Lord sent fiery, I'm sorry, that's verse six, verse eight. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. All right, now just pause there. Not sounding too good, right? I mean, these fiery serpents have been biting them and, and, and killing them, many of them. And so when, when God tells Moses, make a fiery serpent, we're thinking, man, this story is going from bad to worse. But we keep reading, and it says, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So, so, so think about what's going on in the story. We're a bit surprised when we come to the story and we see that God doesn't immediately remove the serpents from their midst, right? God can do anything he pleases. So we would think, hey, God, Moses prays, hey, would you mind to get these serpents out of here? He's just going to remove them from the camp. But that's not what God does. God allows the serpents to remain in the camp, but it is for everyone who is bitten, if they'll look to this bronze serpent lifted up on the pole, it says they will live. And that's what happens for the people of Israel. When they look to the bronze serpent, they experience healing, wholeness, life, salvation in their physical sense. And I bet for the people of Israel, when they heard this, I mean, this seems a little unusual to us, right? Like, God, why are you working in this way? If this seems a little strange to us, it must have been scandalous to the people of Israel. Why is this? Well, first off, we just read, right? The, the very instrument that was leading to their death now becomes their source of salvation or healing. So not only does it surprise us in the immediate context of Numbers 21, 4 through 9, but it also surprises us in the context of the Bible because we read the very first week of this series in Genesis 1 to 3 that there was a serpent that came into the garden that deceived Adam and Eve and drew them away from God. So not only is the serpent the source of their present suffering, but the serpent is the source of evil bringing into the life to pull them away from God. They must have been shocked that God says, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and whoever looks to this bronze serpent will live. Now let me just ask you, does this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar that, that, that a shocking instrument 
would be the means of God's salvation for his people, a lifting up of that means of salvation. And if you're in Christ, then you have to be thinking about the cross of Christ. Turn over to John chapter 3. Numbers 21 points us forward to John chapter 3. When Jesus is, I'm going to summarize this for us, he's having a little conversation with this man, Nicodemus, all right? And parents, you should go home and tell your children this Bible story. So the, this man, Nicodemus, he was a religious leader, and probably for uh, just kind of his own reputation, he comes to Jesus at night, and he says, good teacher, uh, we see these signs that you're performing, and he just wants to kind of have a conversation, trying to figure Jesus out. And so Jesus, in, in verse 3 of chapter 3 of John, he says, no one can see, hey, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God. This is what everyone's after, right? You Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees and the people, we're, we're all after possessing the kingdom of God. He says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And so Nicodemus is kind of puzzled. What do you mean, Jesus? You know, how can a man be born twice? I mean, that kind of seems uh, difficult. And, and so Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh. Mothers give birth to their babies. But spirit gives birth to spirit. In other words, the, the spirit of God has to come in and, and convince us of the truth of the gospel so that we will look to Christ and be healed on the inside. So there's physical healing going on in Numbers 21, but there is spiritual healing, eternal healing that is spoken of in John chapter three. Because he goes on, Jesus, and he says this to Nicodemus in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Of course, speaking of himself. And then verse 14, don't miss this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see that? Just as Moses lifts up the serpent in the wilderness, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him can have eternal life. And so this, this lifted up language, you can equate this language with the cross of Christ. Jesus was born to die so that he might save all who look to him. We saw this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. What does it say? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus takes the, the judgment and the condemnation that our sin deserves, that, that our sin rightfully separates us from God. The wages of sin is death. And if that sin goes unforgiven, we will spend eternity in hell. But Jesus, rather than us having to experience the, the pain and the suffering with eternal consequence, he dies in our place, becomes the curse for us, takes on our judgment and condemnation so that if we look to him, we can live and have life. Isaiah 53 says the same thing, verses four and five, but he was pierced for our transgressions the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities, the cross. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. It's through the work of Christ on the cross that we can find this healing, this salvation, not just for our physical lives, but for the brokenness that assails us on the inside. The work of Christ on the, on the cross can make our lives whole. And so let me just say to you this morning, some of you may have come here and you say, Tanner, you know what? We haven't spent much time together or even if we have, maybe I haven't been too open and honest with you. You don't know what a bad person I am. And I would just say this to you today. There's no one so bad that they are beyond the reach of God's salvation. But you may be here and you may think, man, you know what? I'm, 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 my life's pretty good. I'm a good person. I'm pretty smart. I've got a nice job. Things are working out pretty good for me right now. Listen, there is also no one so good that they are not beyond their need for God's salvation. So whatever, if you are in either of those camps, know that you need to, just as I did as, at a young age, you need to look to Christ and find life and salvation. And what do we find in John 3 about this work of Christ on the cross? It's driven by love. Look in John 3, 16, one of the most familiar verses in the Bible. It says this, right after Jesus says, the Son of Man must be lifted up, Jesus continues it and says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So think about that. Love is driving this mission. God loves, and he expresses this love in a gift. His gift is the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. So that whoever would look to Christ and his work for us on the cross can have eternal life. I mean, this is bound up in what's happening in Numbers 21, by the way. It wasn't as they were looking to a bronze serpent without some faith, without some belief, that that look would actually have a healing effect. And the same must be true of every single one of us. We must come to that place where we see that we need Christ. And as we look to him, we have to look believing that he did what we can never do for ourselves. And as we look to him, he heals us. And he brings us salvation, eternal life. And I know you read those words and you think, that's all about my eternal destination, getting that squared away. And it is, but let me just tell you, when the Spirit causes someone to be born again, to have life, eternal life begins in that moment. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life. There's living and then there's being alive. And this is why Jesus came. He lived the life that we should have lived, died the death we should have died so that we might have life in him. He goes on to say in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And so when Jesus is lifted up on that Roman cross, voluntarily taking our place so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, 
Everyone who looks to Jesus will live and have life. So let me ask you today, have you looked to Jesus and experienced life? Because if you have, listen, there is no greater celebration. Forget about Redemption Hill Church. Who really cares about Redemption Hill Church and our little measly celebration today when it comes to people who, are, who see that they need Jesus and turn to him in faith and receive salvation? That is the greatest celebration that heaven knows and that we will ever know. So listen, come to Christ If you have not received salvation, look to Christ and live. It's as simple as that. The simplicity of the gospel is in some ways shocking, but but all we have to do is look to the sufficiency of Christ, trust in that work, and experience life. And then for, for, for everyone who is in Christ... When, when that happens, when you look to Christ and experience salvation, here's the really cool part. We continue to do that, not only every single day, but we like every moment of every day, we just keep looking to Jesus. And as we keep looking to Jesus, we keep experiencing life. So Robert Murray McShane, one of my favorite uh, Scottish pastors in the 19th century, okay, I got a few, all right, just bear with me. Uh, he says, for every, for every one look at yourself, We could throw in, for every one look at your circumstances, take 10 looks at Christ. So just to ratchet that up a little bit, just to kind of, you know, not hating on my shame, but just to to, to ratchet it up. How about for every one look at yourself, take 10,000 looks at Jesus, right? This is where life is found. It's found in Christ. So what is going to, to cause your life to experience joy, to experience peace, shalom, flourishing, wholeness. It's looking to Jesus. And if you'll look to Jesus, not today, but tomorrow, and for the rest of your life and for all of eternity, then you will experience the eternal life that he died to bring. So I hope that a vision of Christ will fuel your life, and I I hope that a vision of Christ will continue to fuel this church because as we experience God's love, then we are compelled to distribute that love not only to one another, but to everyone in our city and to the ends of the earth. So let me close with this. There's a a famous preacher. I've I've quoted him a few times in in my sermons. Um, His name was Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon was a pastor in London, but uh, he, he wasn't born a Christian, okay? Everyone, no one is born a Christian, okay? If you meet someone and say, how long have you been a Christian? They say, I've been a Christian my whole life, okay? Just be suspect of that because that's impossible, all right? No one comes out of the womb saying, Jesus, I need you because I'm a sinner, right? This doesn't happen, all right? So, so, so there was a time in Spurgeon's life where he felt miserable because he knew that his sin had separated him from God. And so it was a snowy day, and he couldn't make it to his own church. So he goes to this, this uh, as he called it, a primitive Methodist church. And, and the, the preacher that got up, I guess the, 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 the reverend who typically uh, preached the sermons was unable to make it. He was snowed in. And so he says this, at last a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. I mean, he could have just said he wasn't good looking, you know, he's like a lot of issues there. Okay, but Spurgeon's just shooting straight. So he says, he says, um, he was obliged then to stick to his text for simple reason that he had little else to, st- to say. 
And the text was Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And so Spurgeon goes on to say, he says, he did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. My dear friends, this is a simple text indeed. Look. Now, looking don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or lifting your finger. It's just look. Will a man need not go to college to learn to look? He may be the biggest fool, and yet he can look. And he goes on to say this. He says, look to Christ. All you have to do is look. And so Spurgeon says that he followed up and, and, and then he actually addressed Spurgeon directly. He says, young man, you look very miserable. And Spurgeon says, well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before, okay? So can't you, aren't you thankful that I'm not like calling anyone out here this morning saying, hey, you look pretty miserable. Um, what's up with you? All right, but this is what happens in this moment. And so uh, Spurgeon goes on, he says, he says, however, it was a good blow struck right home. And the preacher continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if now you obey this moment, you will be saved. And Spurgeon says this, I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not uh, what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed by that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away there and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away and that moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you will be saved. Spurgeon's testimony was from uh, an untrained preacher who simply says, look to Christ and live. And so what I want to say to you this morning is to look to Christ and live and experience the blessing, the fullness, the abundance of all that Jesus died to bring us. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us to look to Christ and live. Father, we have nothing else to do. There's nothing else we need to do other than to look to Jesus and find life and salvation. So I pray for all of us here on this special day in the life of our church that we, whether it's for the first time or the 10,000th time, that we would look to Christ and his work for us on the cross and his glorious resurrection and that we would live. We pray these things in his name. Amen.